Hey, I'm Ochoa. My question today is inspired by something I saw on Twitter today. You ready for this one? Well, I don't know because sometimes I'm not, but let's hear it. Well, we'll see. So this is from a guy named <laughs> Adam Yankee. Yankee, maybe? Okay. I don't know. It's Y-A-N-K-A-Y. His Twitter handle is at its A-M-R-Y. Okay. So if people want to shout out and tell him that we answer, we responded to his random tweet on the Craft the Draft podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'll probably reach out to him after this. Anyway, if he's yeah, listening, what's up? Fun. We're about to, we may or may not answer this to your satisfaction. It's not really a question, actually. It's a question that's inspired by his statement. All right, let's get this. It says, he said, saw a recent post about seating charts. Seating charts. Is that really a thing? Or that, is that really still a thing? I've been letting kids choose their seats for so long, I forgot there was any other way. Besides, after one week, they sit in the same place every day anyways, so you kind of have your chart right there. End tweet. So my question to you is, what's your thoughts on seating charts? Do you use seating charts? Do you let kids sit wherever they are? What, after your 30-plus years in education, have you come to conclude about these things called seating charts? Seating charts. Well, I've done all of them. I've let them choose. I've let them like sneak by me and move to their friends after I've put them in a place. I do know that uh, when I work with teachers that are pretty new to teaching, uh, seating charts are a great way to, I guess, establish your authority in the room. Because I really feel like if you can't get a student to sit down when you need them to so they can listen to you, even if it's for that 10 mini, mini lesson, then you're probably uh, dead in the water on content. So seating charts, I think, I think it's teacher preference, personally, provided that you can control the room. So sometimes when I'm having trouble controlling a room, which can happen because you have those students that sometimes think they control it better than you, then, yeah, we, we do seating charts. I typically start at the beginning of the year in a seating chart, but I try not to put it in your usual A, B order. I just kind of randomly put them places, and that's just so that if something happens and I have to be absent, that I can at least have them go there. So typically what I do is I say, okay, when there's a sub, this is your seating chart. <laughs> Make sure you sit here because the subs need a seating chart. So that's what I do. And then when I'm in the room with them, I mean, they get up and move. We, we have all kinds of um, possibilities for them to share with each other, get up and move, at least in non-COVID days. And so the seating chart's just like a base. And then after that, they just go wherever they need to. It's kind of how I use them. I try not to be too strict because sometimes that can also be a point of contention with the students. So I just kind of read the kids. and uh, But I say if you're having trouble and they can't stay in their seats, I think that's the number one thing. You just got to be able to keep them in their seats if you need to. Because to me, you, controlling that classroom and that behavior is one of the first things that you need to do. I mean, you can let it be as loose as you want as long as you can pull them back in and control it if you need to. Because there are times that they have to be able to sit still and do the things they need to do in order to accomplish what is, you know, like testing and other things like that. So, well, yeah, and I, I think th- it's, I think it's teacher discretion. Yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to whether, um, your, 
my kids yelling in the background. I think a lot of it comes down to your what control you have over your classroom, kind of like you said, right? If you and also the 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 age of kids, the culture of the school, um, just the, the variety of situations. I think the fact that he's, he talks about how he hasn't had seating charts for a long time probably means he's working at a place. He either has really great connections with kids mm-hmm. and, and a classroom setup that just lends itself to control, which kudos. I think it totally is something that can happen. Um, or he's working with groups of kids that particularly don't need that level of structure, right? They, they know how to right. manage their own behavior enough to where they kind of structure themselves. I know that um, I have groups of kids some years that where we can really do that. And I also have some where uh, they are self-destructive to themselves, even with the control that I have in the room. So letting them choose stuff can work backwards and I can also set a seating chart and all of a sudden my room's great again. So, um, I, you know, like I, I think, uh, this idea that, and I don't, I guess this wasn't his point, but I think, you know, there's no shame in seating charts. I think they are valuable. Um, I think they lend themselves really great to cooperative learning groups as well. If you want certain kids to mix with different kids and get outside their bubble, um, Letting kids just kind of choose where they go can isolate kids that will not speak to people outside of their comfort zone. That's right. Um, So I think there's a lot of social-emotional aspects of the seating chart that uh, we should probably consider before deciding not to have them. And that that probably is more so with younger kids, I would imagine. Elementary, middle, and then high school, I I would imagine that breaking away a little bit. But, you know, anyway... That was a fun conversation about CD charts. This is Craft and Draft, ladies and gentlemen. We start every episode with a question just to get us going. Sometimes we talk forever in the intro, and sometimes we don't. It just happens. And sometimes we pull random tweets from the internet and respond to them with no context other than reading them and putting our thoughts on there. You know, it's almost like we're it's like a radio show. We just pull stuff and we, we're like commenters on things. So we talk about craft and draft, our our process. We talk about workshop and we talk about everything education. So uh my my name is Jacob Chastain. That is Pam Ochoa. She is a veteran teacher. I am not a veteran teacher, but I have been teaching for quite a bit at this point, I suppose. Past the average quitting year, by the way, five well, years. Well, there you go. So then I, that makes I, you veteran. I beat that by two, so we're ready to go. Um, but today we're talking all about what does it mean to be a good team member? What makes up good teams in the ELA space? What can destroy teams? And how does it all fit together with these workshop conversations? More on that right now. All righty. So teamwork makes the dream work. And I got to tell you, I'm kind of a crappy team member sometimes, or at least I have been. I've never, you know, I think growing up the way I did Right. I grew up trying to uh, basically having to fend for myself a lot of the time, made it to where I didn't ever and still don't really reach out to people for help, reach out for advice. I kind of like I'm a I love going at it alone a lot. Now, I've changed that over time because I've come to respect the people around me, but I've never been a I'm not a naturally good team member. What, w- what would you say about you? I, I mean, I, I know how you work now, but are you are you naturally a good team member? Well, you know, I was an athlete growing up, so I just have to insert that. I did get an award as 
a volleyball player my senior year. I did get the greatest dedication. team member ever. This is the time where you're telling pretty me much, that, right? pretty much. It was dedication, <laughs> determination, and whatever desire and all that kind of stuff. And uh, pretty much got it because I was a team member. But um, I always felt like as a ball, and I'm just I'm using that because I think that's where my origin of team work is from is uh, my parents were coaches, so they always preached teamwork. There's no I in team. Uh, So as a volleyball player, and I played in college, but as a volleyball player, um, I was a hitter, but I felt like it was my job to make the setter look good. It was the setter's job to make the passer look good. And so uh, together, we we, uh, created a pretty good team. I have had it where... And I know it's not teaching that I'm talking about, but I think the same principles um, work is in a in a teaching team because it, it, our job, I think, as a teammate, is to help the other person, you know, come to the top. And so, if there's something we have to offer, then I think we should share it, not impose it. And so that's probably where I have trouble sometimes because I have all this research in my brain. And I'm like, dadgummit, you need to do it because it works. So sometimes I might impose and that's where I, I become a threat. So I don't mean to be. My intention is to lift up, but that doesn't always occur. I played sports on uh, the team as well. I played baseball. I played football, but I ended up being more attracted to baseball over the years and i think that was because it was more individualized right like when i'm at the plate it's me you know what i mean uh (laughs) well it has those components of individualism doesn't it yeah a little bit more than some other things you know it's not so much about passing you know there there are some team pieces but uh you know and i was drawn to pitching and things like that also a very solo piece right in the the middle of the of the field for all people although even the mound is kind of raised up a little bit there that's right Uh, i know know, i'm kind of seeing an image here it fit my childhood ego i suppose but the i wasn't ever very good i played catcher a lot more than that so at least i had to work as a team there well Um, that is yeah but you know i just i'm always amazed by people who are really good team members. Like they're, they're really good at just including and listening. Um, and like some people are just so natural about like sharing the intellectual wealth of a team. And I try to learn from people like that. Uh, it also hurts that like when you're opinionated, right? Like, I, I mean, I don't know if anyone knows this based on how I just respond to anything, but I definitely have opinions on stuff. And really? sometimes those opinions make me, they, they honestly, they, I'm, I, I say, I think I sound more closed off than I actually am because I speak direct when I'm talking to people and I usually say exactly what I'm thinking. Um, and that has not always worked in my favor. So I, <laughs> I've had to learn uh, human psychology a bit on this, but. Well, you know, I'm probably not quite where you're at. I have opinions and they're pretty strong. And I think the older I've gotten, the more strong my opinions have gotten. But my personality is such that it's like I'll sit back for a while and then I might hem-haw too much trying to get something done where you're more direct. So sometimes that backfires too. And I get walked on or people, they don't think I have an opinion because I sit quiet too long. So I do think there's a nice balance there. I think you do need to be assertive enough to get something done. 
Well, um, and I think this ties to this idea of teamwork too, right? Because if you have someone like me on a team who is outspoken and in all aspects, right? Like when the team does well, I make sure every admin knows like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm loud in support of successes for people. And I, uh, go to bat and I'm willing to share things pretty much anywhere that anyone will listen. So there's benefits there, but that also backfires if, you know, I'm trying to be too abrasive in a meeting when, or something like that. So there is that, but then you have people like you who will listen more and do and, and process and make more careful decisions rather than brash decisions like I tend to make. So I think this, this is where the idea of the team comes in because it, I don't think it really matters what your deficits are if there are people there to balance them out and you respect mm-hmm. them for playing that role. Like a uh, perfect example. I'm not a detail. I'm a global thinker. I'm not a detailed oriented person. I don't care about dates. They just go in one ear out the other. If you send me an email with a date, it's going to go, it's just going to go into my eyes and I'm just going to go look at something else. Uh, I, I just don't process that way. Uh, and I, but my team members, I have two specifically who, make sure that I am on the certain dates and it's an understanding relationship. Like when like, Hey Chastain, we have to do this at this time. I don't like think like, Oh no, they're overstepping. Cause I'm the DC or something like that. It's Oh, thanks. Mm-hmm. Sweet. I was going to miss that. Um, but then they appreciate when, you know, something's bothering them and I just like solve the problem in about 0.5 seconds because <laughs> there's no waiting for decisions. So I think that's, that that's a hard balance to have because sometimes you can have too if you have too much abrasiveness, those people tend to butt heads. Um, you know, if you have too many people who want to show off, so to speak, you know, they butt heads in a lot of ways. So it's like a it's like a weird thing. And I'm, I'm sure you saw this as a coach too, right? Of just out of all the years that you were coaching, just seeing how like certain teams really worked well and certain teams didn't. Like, was it? What what was there common themes of dysfunctional teams that you've seen over the years? When you say themes, you're talking about things that cause them to be dysfunctional. Is that what? Yeah, we're like did they about? like? Because I'm sure you've seen good and bad, but out of the bad ones, are there are there common missteps that are being are, that that have have that have happened to kind of create those uh, negative experiences on these teams? Do they have do they have common issues? Yeah, I think I think to me one of the common issues is is this idea of um maybe competition to the point not competitive as a team to help everybody get better, but maybe as a team to kind of make oneself look better than the others. So sometimes jealousy might play a big role in that. I don't know if it's jealousy, but it's something like that. Or people who don't want to release control. I have a tendency to release too much control. So sometimes, you know, I need to get some of that back. But I think when you, it's a give and take, but sometimes, sometimes people are, they just take, take, take. And sometimes people just give, give, give. And then eventually they get tired of it. Um, You know, and, and a lot of times sharing the work, uh, some people just don't like to share. And I'm starting to become one of them. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Decent. But uh, no, actually, I think that's a problem. I think I think having a common vision or the lack thereof is a problem. I think if you, 
maybe you don't have the same beliefs about learning, about students, about where you're going, about data, 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 whatever you want to call it. I don't think you have, some people think that like using data is like, I'm so tired of them telling me to use data. I don't have time for that. And other people are like, oh my gosh, we got to get down to the very little bitty, bitty, bitty bits of it. So, you, you know, that's just one example of how two people could not see the same ideas and not figure out a way to use those to, to help each other. So I would just think um, sometimes friction, they just, personalities just grate on each other's nerves. And that happens. If you have somebody who talks a lot and somebody who doesn't like people who talk a lot, that, that's a problem. Yeah, you know, you know we're, we're talking about like team stuff, but there's also like the personality aspect too, right? Like the, oh, yeah. <laughs> sometimes people yeah. just don't work with the certain personalities around them. They just don't. And I mean, it's just hard to always understand it. But boy, when a team comes together, and I'm going to go back again to my volleyball team. I think that's just safe uh, for me because I've had so many teams over the years. I don't want to upset anybody by saying this. So I'm going to go back to my volleyball team. And that is my, um, I guess it was my sophomore and junior year in college. We had two people that I I guess it was over some sort of, um, I don't know. They both wanted the same date or something like that, you know, something like that. But I don't know what the whole heart of the argument was, but they got in an argument to the point that they would tank games. I mean, they would just get mad at each other and just start hitting it in the net rather than, you know, just to, oh, you pass it to me? Fine, here's what I'm going to do that. You know, I mean, it was just really awful. And so my junior year, when all, I think that was my junior year. And then, so my, when I'm a senior, our seniors, we all got together and we decided we're not going to let anything like that happen. And so we made a point to, to um, bring in all of our players. We included them where we went. We made sure everybody was uh, involved. We lifted everybody up by, you know, complimenting them when they needed one, you know, helping them out when they needed help, you know, helping them with how to manage the coach who was always kind of cranky at times, you know, and so we, we helped even the younger ones. And together, by doing that, we ended up creating a team. And we didn't have any, we, we said, no, we're not going to have any conflict. We created a way to take care of the conflict when it came up, because we were now the ones that were the seniors. And our coach allowed us to do that. We even had team meetings that we led. Uh, she stayed out of it. And as a result, we ended up, um, well, we ended up going to nationals, but we were undefeated all the way up until the national tournament. So, and all of that has to do with the way we work together as a team. We decided this is what we wanted, and we did things in the process to make sure that what we wanted happened. And I think that's, when you're working together with, in a school setting, I mean, you, I think that's where data is important. You set those goals as to where you need to be. And if you all have, are in agreement with that, then you need to figure out ways to get there. And we work together on a journey. So that's kind of my little philosophy there. Philosophical. Well, and I think a lot of that applies to everything. I mean, there is, I don't know. I've, I've been on a variety of teams. I've seen a variety of teams. Um, you know, I've, I've been in top down teams. I've seen teams be very democratic. I think, you know, I want to kind of go back to the, the sharing of the work idea. Cause I feel like some of that 
is hard for teachers to do when you don't trust the people that you work with professionally. Ah, that's a right? big word there, Jacob, is trust. I think that's what we built on that team that I was talking about, trust. Keep going. I'm sorry. Well, and so it, it's a good word. I, I think that's it's really difficult to do is even with like even with people that you like, right? You probably respect them. You like them. It's still uh, in teaching, teaching so personal. It's your space. They're your kids. Mm-hmm. You know, it becomes this, uh, it becomes a, a, a family group in a lot of ways. And so you don't want anyone messing with that. And to let someone say plan a week that you're going to follow becomes risky because you're like, well, how do I know that what they're doing is going to do this? And I think there's the interesting part of that is I think that doesn't work unless there's trust, but also this communication aspect, because if someone, if a team member is going to plan the week or outline the week or something like that, or maybe just even kind of put in place what uh, could happen that week, they need to know what each class is kind of needing. Right. So like right. Uh, that takes like constant communication, constant looking at data across uh, each teacher constantly formatively assessing with one another and talking and going, Oh, this is what I'm seeing in my class. What are you seeing in yours? How did that story go? Oh, it went like this. And that's, that's a rapport that is very difficult to gain. And I'll be pretty, I'll, I'll be 100% honest. I think the, my first year that I've had that is probably this year with one of my new team members that we've brought on. She was like the first person I ever worked with directly. My son is screaming back there. My, uh, right. Cause they're doing dishes over here. So, <laughs> Oh my God. I you on mute. <laughs> I can't meet what I'm talking. Hang on. I'm going to let him stop screaming for a second. It's getting late. He needs to go to bed. Yeah, I could hear him that time. But with this team member, you know, she it was the first time where we she talked about teaching the same way I did. She she mentioned, you know, Penny Kittle and Kelly Gallagher and Donalyn Miller, and she was Abydos trained, and she talked about data the same. And, like, even when we were hiring her, I remember it was, like, an early interview over Zoom because this was in COVID, and we had just mm. done, like, seven interviews the day before that were all kind of bad, and I was just kind of over it. And, like, I just couldn't stop smiling in the interview because I was like, oh, this person is literally perfect. And so I told my principal, I was like, I need – she's my partner, and if you don't let her be my partner, I'm going to cry. And so she was like, <laughs> all right, Did Jess, you really they, cry? <laughs> probably because it was so perfect. <laughs> And I, I wasn't disappointed. She's been great this whole time. We aren't direct partners because we have different – I teach all honors and she's on level. But uh, we were still able to kind of bounce ideas back and forth. And she is someone that next year we're, we're putting it into more of a partner uh, landscape because it's just – it's so perfect. But that – I mean it took seven years essentially for me to run across someone just in the wild, right? And I mean that's mm-hmm. – and and I'm DC, so I've also been able to hire people that kind of fit the vision too. And now, like going on next year, there's a, there's this team that has kind of been cultivated by my hand and principal's hand to kind of create <laughs> this 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 magical existence. But I mean, 
for not everyone has that control. Not everyone's that lucky. You know, you, sometimes schools are filled with teachers that aren't leaving and they probably should leave, but there's, you know, they, they, they don't get fired or anything like that. So you end up with team members that don't fit. And I think that's the hard part, right? I think that's the majority of people, you know, some people are very lucky. I think a lot of people, you know, it's just like, oh man, we have like, you know, these three teachers, they've been here forever. They're doing this. They're, there's nothing wrong with them, but it's, it, the teams don't work. So people leave, they change schools. And then it's just kind of like this revolving door and you can't build a team with a revolving door. But I, my question is like, what is, I don't know, like, how do you, how do you develop professional trust with somebody? Because I, I like when you and I first started coaching together, for instance, we did not have professional trust with each other at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was because one, I not was young you and were. you were like, this guy's a jackass. I don't need him. In I my did not office. say that. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> Other people might have said that. I didn't say that. Well, so uh, what what ha- what happens? How does it change? I mean, how how does the evolution of trust happen? Is it is it just something that is organic, or do you think you can actually actively work to build it? Well, I think you can cultivate it with. You know, we talked about professional development. I think through shared professional development. You can cultivate it that way. I think your principal plays a big role in knowing their people and putting them together in a way that they, you know, the principal, I think, needs to be visionary, honestly, and that they need to look at their people and how are they going to fit within that vision. Most of the time they get it right. Sometimes they don't because... They gotta they gotta have a way to make sure everybody has a, that similar vision. I really think it comes into vision and philosophy. One of the things you mentioned when you were hearing her in that interview, your your teacher, and um, she had the same language. She she spoke from the same people you research. So if she's already using the same exact people that you've already researched that you already trust. And sometimes that builds trust. So that's what I meant by professional development, I think, can help. And I just think making sure that you as you as a person has that person's back, you know, and, and that you're in this together. And, I, you know, I think that's what makes soldiers work out there. You know, I mean, you want somebody on your six that's going to take care of you, you know, or your wingman, whatever they call it. But you want them, you want somebody out there that you know will, um, you know, do whatever they can to help you look better. But you have to also return that favor. And I think over time, uh, and like you said, those conversations and accepting each other, I think that's how you build that trust. So, I mean, that's that give and take I was talking about. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's a lot of it is like based on you, right? I think my teams, I, I, I don't think it's a surprise that as I got better at, communicating in uh, more efficient ways with people that my teams got stronger, right? <laughs> I just, it, it didn't you don't just think happen. That was, you don't think that was random? Yeah. So there is, there's that piece, you know, I think, mm-hmm. I, I think uh, we, a lot of teachers, what start when they're what 24, 25, there are people who change professions later in life, but the majority of, you know, teachers start when they're young, you know, they don't teach that in school, really. They don't really teach, professional relationships. And it's something that you don't really expect as a teacher that it really does like the best teams are teams that, 
uh, work so well together that can lesson plan. Um, and I think a lot of it, specifically in English, really does start on like a philosophical standpoint. You know, the the one thing that mm-hmm. we did this year at the beginning of, and we'll do next year too, is okay. Th- so these are our beliefs as a department. Do we do we all hold these beliefs? Do we disagree? And I got that from Regi Routman, where she talks about that's when she goes and works with teams that they start mm-hmm. there and it sounds silly. And she was like, you know what? Sometimes teams can only find one thing they agree on. And she was like, but it's at least one thing to kind of build a foundation on. We were fortunate enough. We listed like 10 things that we agreed on, but building, but creating that, that process of here's, here's our non-negotiables. You know, what do we believe about reading? What do we believe about writing? What do we believe about workshop? You know, some of that is supported by, if you're in a district like ours that has, documents that says, you know, these are the ELA pillars that we, right. that we roll on. You were one of the co-authors of that document. Well, they, um, they put my name on there anyway. Yeah. So <laughs> the meeting, <laughs> so that's, I mean, that stuff is beneficial, but uh, you know, mm-hmm. once again, not every district's like that. So I think when it comes to creating good teams, just figuring out, you know, stop just talking about the job and like, go a little deeper. What's the philosophy underpinning? What's, you know, what drives me to teach a certain way might not be the same reason you do. You know, what the, because to go back to my current partner, you know, she, her, her and I have similar missions in the classroom, which is we want our kids to be successful and pass tests and do all that stuff. But we, you know, we want them to be readers and writers, but not because we're obsessed with reading and writing. We want them to be readers and writers because we genuinely believe they will have better lives if they read a lot and write a lot. And mm-hmm. they might pursue those things or might not, but that that core value of what we just believe about what we're teaching, it goes beyond the standards, it goes beyond that. But we're realistic enough to realize that it's still a job and there's still things to hit. So we we balance there to where we can go, okay, what are the authentic things that we want? What is the core? Okay, so what does this look like in school land, right? And you know, sometimes right. we, we push it and we get to bend the rules a little more. And then sometimes we got to pull it back to be a little bit more uh, industrial, I suppose, for a lack of a better word. And I think that that's also unique. You know, that that's a, I think that's a healthy team, but there's, you know, I think one of the worst teams that I've seen is when you have people who are big picture and they're like reading and writing is going to change the world. And then you have the opposite person on the team that is, Eh, we just need to get them to pass this test. So let's just let's That's just exactly drill and right. kill. <laughs> I'm sorry to talk over you, but that is true. <laughs> like those two is just two um, immovable objects. Oh my goodness, aren't they? I mean, that I, I agree with you, and I, that's been the case. Or if they don't see the children in the same light, another thing mm. is is you know we have all kinds of students out there, and I think a pet peeve of mine that probably people don't really know, is when you go, well, my student can't because I don't really care. Because I believe, again, going back to that belief, that all students can learn. They may not can learn at the same pace, but they can all learn. It's our job as a teacher to figure out how it is that you can. And you might have been successful with the student that I now have or a type of student that I now have. I don't know what to do with the student. If I trust you, then I'm going to say, Hey, Jacob, how did you handle this type of student? Or do you have any ideas? Well, when you give me that idea, I go try it. But if I go, oh, okay, that's great. And then I don't even try it. 
you know, then that means that I don't really trust you. So I think, I think sometimes when um, I've been in lots of meetings where that you, you try to work as a team and you say, Hey, I think I want to do this. And immediately, First of all, I th- I'm, I'm usually at a pretty high level when it comes to trying to get the kids to think. I, I don't, I probably need help scaffolding sometimes because I think they can all answer that question, whatever that question is. You know, I scaffold within that question, but some people, but some of my stuff is kind of complicated when I start, you know, creating for the students. I can see it, I can see the steps but not everybody else can. And so a lot of times I do get, well, my students don't write. My students can't read that kind of a book. My students can't. And I'm like, well, I think they can. Or they go, you don't understand, Pam, what my students are like. You just don't understand. I mean, and it's like, no, they're all kids. They all need a group of teachers that are going to rally behind them and lift them up. I just think it's all about lifting each other up, including our students, even that Lowest student we got, we got to figure out a way to try to lift them up. And I just, to me, I think that tears up a team too. When you have somebody who wants to care about all the students, so to speak, and then you have these people that are like naysayers over the students. I think that's a problem. So I think I think that's something, I, and I get like that too, you know, with that student that just won't be quiet because they just are needy, you know, and you're like, so do you go to the, my, my dad, when we first started uh, teaching, he said, whatever you do, Pam, stay away from the teacher's lounge. All they do is talk bad about kids and you don't need to be that person. Yeah. And so, you know, it is kind of hard. It's kind of hard. Uh, well, so I think to me that tears people up too. Well, I think that's a, I want to double down on that because I think, you know, I, along with the, you know, figure out what your philosoph- philosophical core is, what what's ticking mm-hmm. you in, in your academics. I think, finding out how people talk about kids too. You know, I just, um, uh, one, an Instagram post that I put out not too long ago, I said, I said, we do need higher standards, higher standards for how we treat the young minds in our care. And I think that is, I stand by that statement and I think teams need to really, you know, uh, I have so little patience for educators who are not in the business of supporting all students. And they might say they mm-hmm. are, but when you use language like they can't do this, oh, we can't do that in here, or, right. uh, you know, my kids just won't do insert this activity or whatever. And it's, it's, it's frustrating because it's, 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 you're operating on a deficit model. At that point, it's kids are deficits to overcome and not potential to bring out. And Mm -hmm. I think that is that that break that'll break my team instantly. Like, I'll just be like, okay, we got to fix your interpretation of this situation. Uh, We're broken because now you have to fix me, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's I see how that can tear up a team. I got to fix you (laughs) that. Well, hey. My, that's one thing. See, like, I think there's also like, I don't know, like, I feel like I have a couple non-negotiables. Like if you, uh, not, not a lot, but you know, Mm -hmm. I think the core is you have to respect kids for who they are and not blame them for things. Like I I die on that hill all the time. You know, I, I talk with, 
well-meaning teachers a lot who are like, no, it's the kids should have responsibility. Yeah, they should, but they're still kids. Like, <laughs> like I, if I was responsible for all the dumb decisions I made when I was a kid and people just like beat me into the ground for it, uh, it wouldn't have worked. You know, the, the, the uh, teachers that I stuck to, um, as a kid and the ones who helped me the most are the ones who, yeah, they showed me why I was being dumb and they told me, you know, they, they corrected this and that, but they never made me feel like my mistakes. And I think that's the difference between approaching kids as, as if there is something to develop and support and then approaching kids as if, you know, you're just there, you're the tyrant, you hand out the bad grades, you hand out the corrections, you write all over their paper in red, you tell them that their behavior is wrong, and then you force it on them to fix it without ever sitting down to create a relationship that makes them care about this punishment at all. Like I think (laughs) the, the number one problem we run into is if teachers are trying to get control of the classroom and they have no relationships with the kids at all. They don't, they don't, you know, they, some of them might not even know their names or like, they don't know where they come from, don't know their backgrounds. And it's like, if I was in a meeting with a teacher like that and they were complaining about these kids, I'd be like, I, I don't know how, I don't know how far we can get in our conversation. (laughs) So I don't know. So in terms of like on a, on a, if you're, if people are on a team like that, or let's say I was on a team like that, luckily I don't work with anyone who looks at kids like that, but if they did, I think my job would be to try to, I know I, I started this by saying, okay, we have to fix you. But really my, <laughs> my, uh, uh, my initial reaction would to ask, try to get more understanding. Cause I, sometimes people vent, it could have been a situation like that, or really just go into, all right, what do you mean by that? And then hopefully through conversations change that. But you know, you, that I think at that point that becomes a, I don't know. That that would be a sticky thorn. If I was working with someone like that, it'd be very hard for me to get over. Well, and it's it's not that they do it that one time. It's just there. It, it's a pattern, and I think once it's, it's also a pattern, how they lesson plan, right? It is how they lesson plan, and what it does is it causes them to. Well, my kids can't do all that kind of writing, so we need to break that up into a formula, and then they give them a formula because now my kids can write. You know, I have to tell them, I have to give them that starter sentence for each one of their paragraphs. I mean, or, and and so when you're doing that, you're no longer allowing them to think. You're not allowing them to be independent, you know. And so in the long run, that's not going to meet your vision that you already talked about. Because your vision was to make their lives better, right? In the long run. The long-term ver- um, vision is for our students to be able to be able to make it in the world, to be able to think on their own, be able to solve problems, be able to to read and, um, you know, create meaning uh, when they need to, you know, out there in the real world. So if we're busy doing all the thinking for them because we don't think that they can. So I, I'm like you, that's a, that's a non-starter for me when it comes to being able to, I think that's probably one of my biggest problems that I have when I'm on a team because I'll state my opinion on that one and all of a sudden it's like oh well Pam's just better than there you know what I mean and so it's they start thinking I'm either I've been told I'm a goody two-shoes I've been I've been called all kinds of stuff over the years I've been called uh oh some people are from Venus and some others of us are from Mars you know as they're looking at me in a meeting because I let my kids 
you know, I didn't do the worksheets that they all wanted. I've had, I've had teachers bring in stacks and stacks of um, sentences, 20 on one side and 20 on the other that need to be parsed. And parsed, of course, means where you have to identify all the different parts of that sentence. And it's just a big old worksheet and that's for their homework. And I'm like, and then the teacher got really mad at me because she came back in like two weeks later and that big old stack was still sitting there because that was not my philosophy. I didn't tell her anything. I just said, oh, thank you for using your clicks on me. But, And then I uh, left them there. Boy, it made her mad because she did use a lot of clicks so that I could do what she was doing. And that's, I've, I've had that happen. So um, I haven't always been successful on a team, but it's typically for those things that you and I just talked about. And well, I do have an opinion about how students learn. I think, see, right there, what you just said, right? The team member who gives you the stuff that you don't want, right? And you're you're kind of stuck with it. You don't, you don't, you know, you're not being offensive, but you just kind of let it go. I think really, so we're talking about what great teams are. The conversations that stop that should happen way before, right? Like the right. the meetings where we meet about, okay, so how, what's our approach to lesson planning and stuff like that? This does not mean a great team has to have a bunch of people that do similar things. That helps. You know, it helps to have people that teach mm-hmm. similar and, you know, it helps like for us in instance, like it'd be beneficial if everyone on our teams were workshop teachers that would smooth a lot of things. But even if they weren't, I think a lot of the – the angst that can happen on a team and the the divides could happen if people communicated about, okay, well, this is how we approach this and, and understand why. And, you know, they might have a good reason for doing a worksheet or something like that. And mm-hmm. you, you can come to a mutual understanding, but they can also, you can meet somewhere and, oh, I see what you're doing. So I'm going to approach it like this. Oh, you want to approach it like that? Awesome. Let's meet after this and compare notes and see how well we did. And you know what? Theirs might be successful. Yours might be successful and y'all can both go on. Yours might be successful and theirs not. So then there's time for growth or it might happen the other way, right? <laughs> They're more successful right. than you. And so I think that 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 process, though, I think can build mm-hmm. teams uh, in, in interesting ways because even if you might be diehard and – the way you're going to approach something, they might do it differently. And you're like, I don't think that's correct. Or I don't think that'll work. Theirs is more successful than yours. It might make you grow and that might work vice versa. Um, But it's all about that conversation. It's about getting people together and talking about uh, professional practices without feeling like you're on attack, right? Teachers are very sensitive in terms of, you know, this is this is how I do things. This is this is what you know. It's even worse, you know. If it's this is what we've always done, you know. People are very sensitive to uh, any type of criticism of what they do in the classroom, and I think that facilitating conversations. You know, I think this is a great step for DCs to do in PLCs if they're strong enough. Um, but more often than not, it might be an admin step in to where okay, let's talk about this and go through it or maybe a coach that can lead the conversation and, and really get people talking about it. And that way there's not this awkward moment where I hand you a hundred worksheets and, and say, 
uh, good job. Like I know our science department, they like have a binder or at least they used to, I might be lying right now, but they used to have a binder where their whole like six weeks was printed out in this binder and every kid had it all. And I'm like, I couldn't even imagine having everything laid out for a whole six weeks. I barely have everything laid out for an entire week. Most of the times I have like what I want to do, but in terms of passages, I change that on the fly because I respond directly to what's happening in the workshop nine times out of 10, but for their team, it it was successful. All the team members liked it. So it's like, you know, to each their own. But I think without those conversations, it's very difficult, very difficult. And this guy, I don't know, this comes down to, do you think PLC norms go to that? Like setting norms for those types of conversations. Do Do you think that plays a role into creating healthy conversations? Oh, I think they do. Uh, I, you know, I've even been told, I've even told uh, as a PLC coordinator, as I was, you know, or at least, I don't know. Anyway, but I was, <laughs> I tried. <laughs> but when a team would come to me or a department chairperson would come to me and ask me, you know, I, I can't get this person. What do we need to do? I've had to, and this was even before, you know, I felt like my first three years or four years at the school that you and I were at, you weren't there those first four years. You were there towards the end. So, um, that and I was working under someone else, and uh, that particular person let me do what I needed to do. They just here's what we want. I don't want you to go beyond this, and I don't want you to be not do these things. You know, you have to do, you know, this stuff and set my parameters. And so within those parameters, as long as I worked within those parameters, it was good. One of them was we had to set norms. So when a when there was a team that was having trouble, that was one of my things that I did is I would go in and they said, Pam, I don't want to have that conversation. Can you have that conversation? So I would go in and there's lots of times I would set norms uh, with teams. But sometimes I feel like the, the norms were uh, superficial. Would that be... You know, it's like, don't talk while somebody else is talking. Don't bring in your cell phones. I think that was a big ordeal at one point. I think if you remember that one. I do. <laughs> and it's like, no, it's not about that. It's it's just, I mean, they all of a sudden decided they weren't going to bring in any cell phones. And then they all got rebelled about it and all that. So I think the norms have to go with the conversation uh, about, you know, are we going... I think it starts with the beliefs, like you said, and then your norms have to fit within those beliefs. But just little superficial norms, I, I don't think really get you very far. And I think that was part of the issues that we had with some of the PLCs that were that we had once met with, is I think they were just, it was just more about don't bring a cell phone, don't do this, don't do that. It was all about what we don't do rather than about what we should do when we converse. I, I think um, we need, so I think your norms could be something like, when we have a conversation, kind of like what you're talking about, we may agree to disagree, but we need to let the data uh, show, you know, it's okay for us to go and and you do yours and I do mine. And then we, we bring to, then we always have to come back together and look at the data always come. So that could be a norm. We always come back together and look at the data. Uh, we always lift up our students. We, we keep conversations out that are going to take us down the wrong path that will not meet our vision. To me, those are kinds of things that I think are less superficial, but just, I mean, I agree that you should, um, you know, not listen to everybody. Don't talk those kinds of things. But I think if that's all your norms are about, 
just sitting there and being compliant, well, that's not really maybe the kind of norms we need to have. We need to have, I think, norms that wrap around our, those beliefs you were talking about. Yeah. I don't know. Does well, that make sense? Yeah. You know, I think it's funny is I, I feel like the, the better the norms, probably the more functional the team, right? I think the right some of the base norms, like, you know, don't talk over people, don't yeah <laughs> don't say anything naughty. Like those things are, mm-hmm. I think those are for like teams that are newer or uh, maybe they've had some issues. So I'll use an example. Last year, um, our DC, she ended up wanting to step down. She ended up she ended up getting pregnant and she was like, okay, well, I don't want to be super stressful. This is happening. So Chastain, she tag out, you're it. Right. She, <laughs> and what's funny, cause I would have, you know, along the lines, I, w- I would have been DC at that time if I hadn't gone to coach at our campus for that one year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of like a natural progression that it got handed to me. But when it got, it came to me, we didn't tell anyone at first because we didn't want anyone to know, you know, it was like this whole whatever. So they didn't know for a while. So I was kind of DC in the background and wow. all, all the time that I'm like the secret DC, right? The team is imploding. You're the SDC. Yeah. The, <laughs> the team is mildly imploding from a team member who is no longer at the campus. Um, mm. but she caused a lot of issues. She was very toxic. She kind of hated things that were whatever. She kind of thought she was like, she was, there was this one time where she wanted to present on something and they said, you can, but you need to present it with me. And she like threw a fit and like, was like, no, I will not present with him. And this was so funny because it wasn't even a, she, she felt it wasn't anything against me. It was her, it was her thing of, I need to be solo et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it, w- it was like this weird thing, but she ended up having a blowout with not me, but another teacher. And so we had this long, I mean, it took so long. It probably took three weeks of creating new norms for the PLC. And like the principal was in there. The principal ended up running the majority of the meetings because they couldn't, she didn't want to give it to the DC who wasn't. They didn't want to give it. They didn't want to have me do it because of the way it would look. So the principal did it. I mean, it took so long oh and it was so it was so uh grating on my consciousness but it was it was one of those things to where like it something had to be done because there was people like literally on the verge of like fighting and that's what that's what i'm saying so like i've seen like toxicity and certain things but what's funny about that is in the pockets of that team there was tons of people like the, the all of us that were left like we were all good you know what i mean like <laughs> It was just, it's amazing, like the power of one or two people, the same, and teachers know this in a classroom, like the the one or two kids can be in there and it just totally changes the culture of something. And -hmm. I think that that's really hard to overcome. So that's when it comes to like, you know, if we're talking about communication again, communicate to admin, Hey, this is what's happening on the team. It's not tattletelling. It's, it's, Hey, this is dysfunctional and we need you to come in because there's no, none of us are equipped to handle this. And now that, that just depends on experience. It depends on whatever. I feel like I could going back from this year to that year, I could have probably handled it, uh, enough to do that. But you know, you live and you learn, but I don't know. Teams are hard. People are hard. People are complicated. If this stuff was easy, every team would be great. Right. <laughs> like <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, the first part of my teaching career, I, you, we didn't have teams. You were isolated, especially at the high school level. And it was very competitive. 
So that started a lot of, I think, dysfunction. So this idea of working in teams, I think, is relatively new. I think some people have done it naturally, but I think over time, this is relatively new. So I think we're still trying to figure that out, you know, but I remember where you just went into your room and I mean, I'm telling you, I've had some vicious times. I've had people move my stuff out of a closet and I had a test that had to be done. I've been in tears. (laughs) I've had some pretty mean people along the way because we were so competitive uh, the way they used to do it. And so I don't know how it is elsewhere because I don't have that kind of experience, but at least where I was at, at the high school level, it was pretty competitive and you didn't, there was no time for team. No time for team. You shut that door and you were an island. So my question to you, and this would probably be a nice cap to this is, are we better with teams or should we go back to those days? Should we go back to the vicious uh, solo days or are teams, are teams better? I personally like teams. Because if you're going to fall, you're going to fall as a group. <laughs> There's power in numbers. <laughs> there really is. If you're going to rise, you're going to rise in a group. Uh, I like the teams. I like working in teams. I like meeting with people. I like bouncing ideas off of each other and figuring out a solution together. Um, I don't like, I mean, I think in some ways, um, you know, some teams delegate you do this, you do this, you do this. And I don't think that always is fluid. So I think if you could figure out a way to balance ideas off of each other and um, I think that would work better. So I, I prefer teams. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I hope we were a good team for you today. This is the Craft and Drive podcast. My name is Jacob Chesson. That is Pam Ochoa. We are two Texas teachers just talking about teaching all the time. This was kind of a weird one because we usually don't podcast once a week, but we podcasted last Wednesday. So this was so close to each other. It was, it, was, it was like, a oh, man, we're just talking all the time. But that's how life goes, ladies and gentlemen. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe. We release episodes every single Friday unless there's technical glitches, which we have had none so far. Cross your fingers. Hope to die. Uh, stick close. around. <laughs> yeah, we, we have come close a few times, but we've managed somehow. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Really do appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, rate it, subscribe, share it. Craftandraftworkshop.com. You can find us on Facebook as well. Uh, and everything else, ladies and gentlemen, if you want a question answered, send it to us. If you have something, reach out, DM, contact, all of that jazz. We are so close to the end of the year. We have like, I know we have like seven weeks where we're at. I'm sure all of you guys are very close as well. So this COVID nightmare of a year is winding down <laughs> and we're able to go into hopefully bigger and brighter days but we'll see you never know we might be having a wait last year we didn't know what was going to happen so you don't know what's going to happen in a year from now so on that positive note ladies and gentlemen know that we are here for you